Welcome to Between a Rock and a Hard Place. I'm Hannah. And I'm Colleen. And we're going to tell you about our life in Iraq. It's going to be fun. I hope so. Uh, we have our first international podcast, Colleen. It's very exciting. That is exciting. Um, we're going to talk today to our good friend, Eric. Um, Eric served with us in Iraq for many years, seven, seven-ish years. Um, and he started the same time as me. So we've been in this for a long time, not yeah. as long as Colleen, but we're trying to catch up. <laughs> um, so Eric grew up in Mexico and that's where he is currently. Um, he lived in Suli and yep. was on a team with you. Uh-huh. And then he was in to hook with me for a little while. Um, and then has also done some stuff in Southern Iraq as well. And so we're just going to talk to him about his life in Iraq because we're not men. So we don't know what it's like there for men. <laughs> you so, have a unique perspective. Yeah. Thank, thanks for coming, Eric. Or thanks for being there and recording with us. Well, really happy to be here and to have been there with you. We thought we might make you um, try to tell us which of our teams you actually enjoyed <laughs> being on more. But we decided that you're really mm. nice and that wouldn't be fair to you. <laughs> so we're not going to ask you that question. I, I would well, say something very even and <laughs> diplomatic. Yes, because you are diplomatic mm -hmm. and we appreciate that. Um, yeah. So I guess our first question for you, which is our first question for everybody who works for SGI, is how did you how did you hear about SGI? How did you get started with us? So I would have heard... Uh, about SGI, actually somewhere in middle school or high school, I, I'm not sure if I would have actually put together that it was SGI, but I I began hearing uh, people that my parents knew talk about it, um, specifically Jerry Brown. And I uh, so I was aware of work in Iraq and that there was a group in Nashville working in, in the Kurdish region. And, and I kind of slowly piece, piece things together from there. I think I, I, I heard a lot more about it right as I was getting ready to leave college. And that, that was because Jerry contacted me very directly and said, hey, consider, consider SGI. And they're, they're amazing. Yeah, that's great. You got that real personal contact. So was Jerry the main reason you chose SGI or Iraq or like what kind of got you the, the so rest I, of the way? Right. So I hadn't been uh, shopping around for like organizations. Uh, I, I was just I had studied Middle East history and I had a general interest in the Middle East. And uh, really, it was Jerry's personal note and uh, kind of right at the right place at the right time, right as I was about to start the job hunts. And, and, and he, he basically said that uh, SGI and Iraq and Kurdistan are, would be a really, really good first entry into the Middle East and to getting a sense of whether that was something for me or not. Uh, and, and he gave me examples and uh, we, we really had a good relationship. So, so the fact that he kind of vouched <laughs> and, and then provided a personal connection with uh, with the director of SGI that that really helped me. Um, and as soon as, as soon as we actually spoke directly, that then uh, it was almost it was settled very quickly that this is a this is a 
an organization I could work with and that I could respect. Yeah. So what did the interview application process look like for you? Like I lived close enough that I could come for an interview. How did you, how did you do that one? I think I, I was not in person. I did submit an application. I remember that. I can't remember what I wrote, but, but uh, it was a, it was a Skype call uh, with Dave. And I think I did that the day after I graduated from college. So it was, uh, yeah, I was on a beach actually and (laughs) (laughs) interviewed with Dave. So that's fantastic. Uh, I think, I guess I didn't, I also didn't know that you had done uh, Middle Eastern history for college. Was there like when you were doing that, was there a specific country or people group in the Middle East that you were like, yeah, I think this is what I want to do? Or were you just kind of open? It was a general personal and academic interest of mine uh, to to get into Middle East studies and history. And I I had an incredible professor at uh, the university that really uh, mentored me in in studying Middle Eastern uh, history. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure on moving to the Middle East or uh, ever working, working there, but uh, it just happened to come together uh, as an opportunity right at that point. So, so, so I wasn't honed in on Iraq, but I actually, because there was some family history in Iraq though. So that was in the background. Uh, My, my dad went to uh, left Mexico and went to the Kurdish region in 1992, right after the first Gulf War. And right after uh, Saddam Hussein's kind of big take back of land and kind of retribution on people who rose up against him during the Gulf War. And so he went on a, uh, on a project to dig water wells in different Kurdish villages. And he spent a few months uh, in the country and he came back uh, with, with all kinds of stuff, uh, with, with Kurdish clothing, with literal machine gun bullets and, <laughs> uh, and uh, all kinds of cool things to show me and stories. And he was so moved that he had ex- actually considered moving our family out there to, to wow. continue living there. It didn't work out that way, but from that was around when, when I was seven years old. So I, I was aware of some, some part of the Kurdish story from way back and so, and that was always in the background. Yeah. So I can put it together now that that was, that was something leading me there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What amazing. you're saying is we got to start recruiting with the, the first graders. Yes. <laughs> oh man, that's going to be, I mean, that's kind of what I trace some of my story back to as well is like having a map of Iraq on the back of our door and looking at all the places mentioned in the news and yeah, and it, it helps having, um, you know, s- some little family story that you can tell when you're first getting into Iraq and meeting people. And it really, it's really served me really well to have a, a story connecting my dad to Iraq and yeah. uh, basically saying that, you know, it, it runs in the family, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got this from my dad. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the different roles and projects you were a part of while you lived in Iraq? Sure. I, uh, so, so the first time I went, I was, uh, I hadn't studied education, but I, I went in as a, as a te- middle school teacher. So I, I got to teach, I think the first, my first year I taught eighth grade history and literature, 11th grade health, 
and economics. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and let's just say you, you can guess which one was a stretch for me, <laughs> but the, but uh, I, I loved teaching humanities classes and I, I ended up teaching, I think in ninth grade uh, history and literature as well. And then um, some, some 12th grade, uh, a 12th grade class as well. And then, um, so, so yes, for a few years was doing the high school and middle school work. Then I very briefly taught at the American University and their academic preparatory program. So the program that gets students um, up to the level to be admitted into the um, American University. And then I, I was out of the country for a time. And then 2014, 2015, during the um, ISIS takeover of parts of Iraq and the displacement of Yazidi communities and other minority communities in the country. I spoke to SGI again, and a project came up to uh, do schools in uh, for displaced children in uh, Yazidi camps right outside of Duhok. And up until that time, I'd only worked or lived in Suli, but that just seemed like the right thing to do. So I, I moved to Duhok and helped helped get that project going as a technically project manager. Um, and so uh, I, I helped facilitate two schools in that camp with um, all with Yazidi students, but um, as Sinjar, uh, the, the city that they're from is run by two different education systems. So we, we actually put two schools in one and ran it, ran the two schools on different shifts. So, so that was a real education of how, how education works from a different perspective. And it was a real privilege to be able to do that with SGI. And it was a really neat school area. And you guys were able to accomplish that really fast from what it seemed like things normally run in the speed. It, it was it was remarkable. Yeah. And I probably, you know, some of that's the, the country in crisis, but, but we also just had so much, so much blessing and um, favor in the eyes of all the authorities to be able to navigate that. And so uh, I was shocked. I was shocked by that, but it was also, it was so encouraging. Yeah. To just, just to see that school go up so, so quickly and then to see it fill up immediately with students. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really big deal. And yeah, that was an uh, unforgettable time. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, so I was living in Duke at the time and teaching at CSM and our students sponsored. I think you guys got them going on the putting together backpacks for the students in the camp, which was an amazing part of way for me to feel involved in that project <laughs> and our students too. And yeah, opening opening day, we, we brought a bunch of our high school students and did all of that. And, you know, it was a great way to get our students who were upper middle class and upper upper class involved in that that refugee and IDP situation in a way that they, I think, had been a little bit afraid to do before. Um, it, it, it was really, I, th- I think it was really interesting to have, yeah, yeah become a link to our, for our students um, connecting to, to the, those communities. Um, it, it actually turned out to work out to actually students, Colleen and I had taught in Suli, who, you know, graduated out of CSM and went to university, their universities contacted us to do volunteer projects. And a lot of those students came all the way from Suli to our school 
without our really, um, you know, orchestrating it. It was just the fact that uh, that relational contact was there that allowed them to volunteer at the camp. So that was really sweet. That's so cool. Yeah. Did you feel like your time having already lived in Iraq and you got your Kurdish studies masters at that in the in-between time? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you weren't wasting your time by any means. Um, How much do you feel like that helped you with those connections and overcoming some of the the cultural weirdnesses? So that's a good question. And it's, it's hard to answer. I think that, okay. So the sequ- my sequence of living in, li- living in Iraq first, and then doing a degree in it, I think was really good because that you, you need some grounding in reality, right? Um, <laughs> and what you know, isn't necessarily what's true for all times uh, of, 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 the groups and people in Iraq, but that that grounding in in the Middle East and the sense of how how uh, culture works, uh, just from your own personal immersion in it, uh, really is an important foundation, especially if you're not a native from Iraq. So that that immediately, like if I had gone into it without that, that would have been a problem. I would have been lost. But then the the you know Middle East studies, Kurdish studies. It, it was helpful because it, it gave me a, a broader knowledge of where the discussions are. It mm-hmm. related to, you know, history, ethnography, anthropology of, you know, Kurds, Yazidis, uh, communities in Iraq. So it was really helpful to get a broader exposure to literature from, from people who have studied this. And uh, also I felt that it really helped Get it, giving more of an ethnographic basis, uh, ethnographic basis to knowledge. So there's a lot of there's a lot of good ethnography that's been done on Iraq and and, and the communities there. And so because the fact that we're working with displaced Yazidis commu- communities from from Sinjar, I think that really did provide me a lot richer context to kind of beware of what I was who I was working with. Right. Right. So you can't go wrong, you know, doing a little research and reading, (laughs) Uh, but, but but I think the, the, that personal exposure to, to the cities and and communities in Kurdistan, that was really helpful to get first. Yeah. Cause you didn't have to overcome some of the, like, how do we get around and how do we communicate? And you already had that. Right. And just, just a sense, I think, just a sense of actually knowing the rhythm of life mm-hmm. within your own sensory experience, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you if you have that, you'll be thrown by so much less, if, it, I, or you won't be thrown as much if, if you've been exposed, like your senses have been exposed to life. Mm-hmm. And so going back that, you know, second or third time, I'm able to deal with other kinds of conflicts because the, those small living ones, that those are already settled. So, you know, you're already kind of at home. So the number one way that we get new people in Iraq is by other people telling them about Iraq. So maybe you're not interested in going, but maybe you know someone who is. Tell them about this podcast. Tell them about Serving Group International. It'd be a big help. So as you did do that studying, 
what did it change the way you saw Kurds or the way you saw Kurdish culture or how things functioned there? Was there anything that gave you like, oh, that's why that functions that way or? Well, I think it, it gave because the at least the degree I took was, you know, academic. So it, it, it tries to stay above the fray of, you know, identity arguments or, you know, which which national arguments are correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so th- it provides a little bit of distance. And I think as a guest in as a guest in any culture, you need to develop that distance anyway. Right. So that you're not completely a partisan and conflicts that have nothing to do with you. <laughs> so, right. uh-huh. uh, so, so I think. It, it helped me, I think, maybe be a little wiser with things I might, you know, knowing the relationships between ideas and families and all of that. You, you still pick that up living living there anyway. But I, I think, you know, a lot of people make claims about history. And and so uh, it, it, it just made it more complicated because with any history that's thousands of years old, Right. It's it's hard to make really, really strong definitive claims. I don't want to offend anyone. <laughs> <laughs> or, or it did make me appreciate all the stories I have heard. Right. And so um, and I I really love jumping into stories and you know where people where they get their stories, who they get them from, how those stories have, you know, been inherited over time. And that's one of the kind of joys of being among Kurds and Yazidis and uh, all the other groups is that uh, they have so many amazing stories, and and it's it's, it's really fun to get into that, those. I think we're gonna maybe have to do a whole podcast where you get to tell us some of those stories because I now oh, like, I want to know. Yeah, and we did a we did a brief series on Yazidi mm-hmm. mythology and and theology. Um, mm-hmm. So if you don't know who the Yazidis are, go listen to those episodes. They're great. Um, well, I think they're great because I did all the research, but <laughs> they'll, they'll fill in some of the gaps there. Is there anything that you learned in, in those studies that was like a surprise that uh, you didn't already have some inkling of? So, so yes, I think there, I think there was, uh, other, other than like little historical moments that I wasn't aware of. I think, I, I think Iraq is very, is very much it, it all it's all about the village right mm-hmm. um and so, so so things are things are very local and people's attachments and and sense of place is re- really really important so people who've done field work in in these villages and have done observations and talked and developed relationships over many years have a lot of, uh, have a lot of valuable things to share so i think i, I read a book by Diane King called Kurdistan on the global stage and uh, I was really surprised by her providing a, a richer layer of context to things that you might just assume are really simple concepts, like uh, say honor shame. You know, honor shame is really important. Well, it is, but why is it important, and what makes it meaningful, right? And so, so I think uh, reading her observations about how kinship works. In families, you know how 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 gender works, uh, marriages, connections between families and lands, and uh, and and then and inheritance, right? How 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 identity is passed down through um, 
through fathers, you know, right, to their children, and, and how, how all three of those interplay, right, to create a rich honor culture. <laughs> and, and so I would have generally thought, okay, you got to respect people because honor is an important thing here. But, but actually, there's all these other relationships that make it really important and, and make you understand the why, right? Mm-hmm. Of, and it's, uh, you step into another culture and you, sometimes we are tempted to make assumptions that this, this does not make sense. This just does not make sense, right, to, to your framework. But actually, it's profoundly meaningful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everything you see. And so uh, some of this literature really has brought out mm-hmm. a lot more, giving me more, more of a framework for the meaning of the place, right, and, and mm-hmm. what I'm trying to navigate there. So, yeah, that, I, I just make that plug for that book but also to, to always be just developing questions and asking questions. Cause like, there's just, I think it'd be a shame to go all that way to Iraq and leave not like with a, just a richer appreciation for what you, what, what you've been in the middle of, which is really special. Well, we can definitely link that book in the show notes. You mentioned honor, shame and relationship to gender and marriage. And so some of our questions definitely have to do with some of the gender differences and the way those affect your life versus, you know, the way they affected our lives. Did you enter any spaces that were like obviously male or female dom- dominated? And how did that make you feel? So yes, I had did. So what I say is like my experience, right? I wouldn't basically try to paint with too broad a brush, but so generally, I, I mean, just as a general thing, I think the the home is very very much family space and female space, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, my whole time in Iraq, I've been a single, single guy. And so as a general rule, uh, I, I don't spend much time in homes. In fact, it's very, very rarely do I go into someone's home. If someone does invite me over, they're probably a really good friend. Uh, and, and the fact that if I, if I do go into the home, Sometimes I probably either just very briefly say hi to the mother or sisters, but they're probably in another room and uh, they come out and serve us some tea or food and then uh, go out again. So that's just, uh, it's just a space that, you know, single guys aren't in. If you were, if you had a family, that'd be a different story. So as a single guy, I, most of the time I'm out in public, in, in cafes and restaurants and going on picnics or going up to different sites with friends uh, or going to places to play games with other guys uh, like me. So that would be the closest to like a female dominated space. And my like, uh, you know, female colleagues actually spend a, quite a lot of time at homes and they get to spend the night at homes and they, they get, you know, almost, it's, I'm almost envious of how much access they have. They might feel more restricted, right? But actually I see that there's a lot more liberty in some of their relationships with, with families than, than I could ever have. Yeah. So, so now if I'm in public, you know, there's a lot of interaction between men and women. It's, Mm -hmm. it's not like it doesn't happen, especially if you're colleagues at schools, universities, um, there's, there's plenty of interaction, but um, that's the space is different. And now if you go into an office, a government office, you could also go into an office with, you know, a, a woman sitting in the, you know, most important seat, right? 
but you'd be wrong to think that's a female dominated space, right? That the, the question it would be, okay, whose daughter is she, right? Who, what are her relationships, right? Uh, that connect her to this position. And more often than not, there'll be, you know, some family, important family relationship um, that's not disconnected from male re- leadership, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, not saying there's no, not a meritocracy or that there's people aren't good at their jobs. It's just that the assumption that, okay, she's in a important position, therefore it's a female dominant space would be different. Um, right. Yeah. So most, most public spaces are male spaces, right? And you'll see that even in the, how the layout of things are laid out in, in, um, in restaurants and other places, the, the family space or the female space is a little more removed. The more public space is where all the, all the men are sitting and this, I mean, we could talk and talk and talk about this. <laughs> um, uh, I think uh, you, you're, you, you don't, you never get away from what you are as a, as a man or a woman in, in these places. You're always interpreted that way. So you have to, I think that's part of the nuances of working there over time is you get used to like making these judgments yourself and realizing just how much is going on, right? It's really easy to live there and not really think about what's going on, but the, the longer you're there, you, the more you see it. Yeah, no, it's thanks. actually kind of nice. There's, I, I'd say that most of my friendships are male friendships though. Yeah. And I think we would say that most of our friendships are female friendships and that's just the way that it is. I think it's easy for us as women to get uh, frustrated with the the freedom that we see our, our male teammates have. But yeah, I hadn't really thought about how you guys don't get invited into people's houses. And it's it makes little life. sense to me why it is that way. But yeah, I, th- I think most of my my team time was with families or other single women. But I always wanted to know, what is it like in those cafes that only men can go in? Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> like, like what, what do you guys do in there? Oh man, it's, it's, uh, I actually miss it. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's just, well, it's really a lot of guys on their phones smoking, right. And, okay. um, and, and watching, watching sports or music videos and, and you miss it playing, playing sports or cards or backgammon. Okay. Um, but, but it's, it's that, that's not the aspect that I miss, but it's, it's the fact that you can just sit, sit with a group of people over a long period of time and you don't have to, the conversation does not have to be interesting. You can just sit there mm-hmm. uh, and then you can, you can laugh, you can talk, you can go silent. It's, it's just, it's really, it's just about being with your friends and in, in Iraq, you know, wherever you go in Iraq, friendship is just such a high value mm-hmm. and the, there's, there's quality of intent of friendship. There's depth of friendship. There's, a lot of expectation with friendship, right? So you end up spending just a lot of time with people that consider you a friend. And so th- there's something there's something unique about that and really special about that once you've been in it. It, it can be exhausting, but it's also really, it's really sweet. So- I mean, I think uh, that's kind of a lot of what the time for women in the homes looks mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Is that same- just less smoking, less smoking. Yeah. But the same sense of just being together and that that is enough to grow your friendship without having some grand deep sharing or like 
something that you've accomplished or like any other thing than just presence. Totally. Yeah, I'm trying to think what else goes on. I, I mean, just a lot of lot of talking. So, and that's the other thing. I think it, it, the number one form of entertainment is talk. So, uh, t- people talk and talk and talk, and it's just a form of entertainment. And so, it's it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Are the men gossipy? This this may or may not oh, go for, to the podcast. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think so. Yeah. They they talk about <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah. probably I, I, I wonder though, I'm not going to say that if you, if you're in a cafe, sometimes the talk can go deep, but a lot of times it's surface level. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're with, with, with another friend somewhere else, it might be, you know, because people are always, uh, weighing who's around them and how mm-hmm. they speak. And so trust can be low in a, in a super public place, you know, you always have to be mindful of, you know, how you speak about your friend because you don't want to hurt your friend's um, image or reputation. So I think, you know, a super public space lends itself to a little bit more surface level talk. Um, Not to say you can't have good conversations in those places, but uh, if you really want to have a, you know, deeper conversation, you might, or more personal, you might need to be around a few little less people. Um, and I imagine that in the home, that's different. I think, I think, uh, ladies would go, you know, deeper, faster, um, within the privacy of the home. So provided you have the language skills and language skills. Yes. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at Servant Group International on Facebook or Instagram, and you should check out our blog and complete transcripts over at servantgroup.org. And it's really helpful for us if you share our podcast or leave a review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. It helps us know that people are listening, and you can let us know what you want to hear next. Thanks Thanks for for listening. Uh, but it's okay. I know that this Wooly team was better and it doesn't hurt my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally fine.